All right, while Charlie is getting a microphone hooked up and everything, I want to take a moment to introduce to you the uh, governing board of Chafer Seminary. So would you men please, please stand up. We have one person who is here in absentia, or he is not here. He's in absentia. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's Jeremy Thomas, who is the pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church. So each of you, starting over here with Clay, just uh, introduce yourself and your uh, church and ministry. I'm Hal Hagemeyer. I am not a pastor, but I go to the National Capital Bible Church. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Ingram, pastor, National Capital Bible Church, which is up in Springfield, Virginia. Uh, No. Uh, I'm Jim McGillivray. I go to Hoffmantown Church in Albuquerque. I'm on the board here. And I'm Mark Musser, the pastor of Grace Redeemer Bible Church. Seats. And this is uh, Charlie Clough, who has been a, a graduate. He's a graduate of Dallas Seminary. He's a former pastor. He's a Bible teacher extraordinaire who has influenced many of us uh, with his framework pamphlet and, and other teaching. And I have always uh, said that Charlie taught me how to think and how to think biblically. So he is uh, retired from uh, working for the military as meteorologist at Aberdeen Proving Ground. So he's our board chairman, and he's going to talk about what's going on with Chafer, where we are today, and where we would like to be, and our involvement with the local church. How many are you, of you are pastors or involved in church leadership? Okay, you're the, you're the men and women that I'm um, primarily focused on as we present da- uh, the, the seminary and the structure and our model um, because you're the center of passing on the Word of God to the next generation. Um, the church, someone has said, is only one generation away from extinction. And so I want to, on these slides, I want to just go through... Uh, introduce the model of Chafer, what we're about, and then I'm going to ask some to come forward and share their interaction that they've had with us. Problem that we see, and I think every seminary sees this, every month or two our office gets a letter that's sort of pathetic because it's a congregation that has lost their pastor. Either the pastor has had a calling and he's moved on. Uh, either he's in ill health, like our own president, George, George Meisinger, uh, or uh, he's dead. Um, so <laughs> this has happened to young Yes, yes, okay. So the problem really here is succession of building leadership so that you can leave and there's people in charge of that are not only in charge of your church but having qualifications to be in charge. 
That is, they have enough theological training to be able to deal with subtleties, be able to do their independent Bible study and not be swept aside by uh, what we've already learned from Dr. Fornell and others, ideas that are embedded in commentaries. And if you haven't studied what these trends are, um, you're liable to just unintentionally bring them into your teaching. Um, So what we're looking for here and our model is based on how do we provide in-depth leadership to local churches. We're not about breeding academic theoreticians here. And I'll get into that when we deal with uh, the accreditation issue. We are interested in building the local church. So all of you who are in pastorates, uh, who are in leadership position, just think here, right now, if you were to leave your church, who do you have in charge? Who do you have that can step into that pulpit, who is competent to do his own independent biblical study, and at the same time, know your people? Because one of the problems in pastoral succession is you're bringing someone in that is not at all intimate to your own people and their trials and their tribulations. And I think you've observed, if you've been in one local church long enough, you've observed that people that flit from one church to the next never stay in one place long enough to see how the Holy Spirit works over time. Sanctification is a slow process. And so you want someone in your leadership who is intimate to your own people that he's not a stranger that you're bringing in and knows your people and their needs. And there needs to be that continuing training. So this is what we're about. We want to look at our situation. We've had a lot of background from Dr. Fornell and Dr. Howes on contemporary problems that we face. And I don't think there's a person here sitting uh, who isn't aware of the declining culture in our nation. Uh, We're getting to the point where not only are schools going to have a problem financially and otherwise, as was pointed out an hour ago, but we're going to have a situation where we churches may have to meet in houses. We've had churches in some cities now that have lost their license to the property because of urban zoning laws. And the zoning laws, there's several lawsuits and several cases already happening where the people who are hostile to the Christian faith are using zoning laws, very clever, to say that there's too much parking on this acreage. Um, They wouldn't apply that same law to other agencies in the town, and that's why it makes them vulnerable to lawsuits. But that's the kind of hostility. I work, uh, I try to keep in touch with at least four or five college students. I call them my cultural insurgents so that I know what's going on on the college campus. And um, you know, if you have young people studying in a contemporary university, uh, you're you're seeing parents and students having to pay between uh, $60,000, dollars $100,000 for a four-year education. The question you want to ask is, what are they getting for 100000 Before you put out that kind of money, you ought to think about what you're getting in return. And here's the, one of the problems we face in our theological camp. We depend on a literate population that can read the Bible. And you think about it. We have a largely illiterate public. We have people that react, people that can assert, people that can name call, but can they think through a reason? I was talking to someone the other day who was with a group of the young people uh, hollering and hooping on the left, and um, he he had voted for President Trump, and so immediately he was attacked as a racist. So very cleverly, remembering Proverbs um, about using your tongue, He turned to the person and said, well, you know, I've never been called a racist before. Could you kind of explain to me how you came to that conclusion? Ended the conversation. Because there was no justification. They hadn't even justified it. It was just a name-calling device. But that's the kind of trivial kind of conversations we have, and it's lethal to the gospel. 
because our gospel is a cognitive faith. It's not an emotional thing. It involves emotion, but primarily it's cognitive, and it requires literacy and thinking. So we have that kind of uh, situation developed, and we have to deal with it, both legally, culturally, and in other ways. Our, our families, uh, one of the projects I've been trying to work with is, is to try to get the, frame, the framework kind of approach so that moms and dads could have a little bit of a manual to work with their elementary age kids. And one of the ideas we had was to sit down, like I did with my four sons, my wife and I, and we would have discussions at the supper table. Well, one of the ladies working on the project pointed out, people don't eat supper together. What happens now? Well, Joe, he's out on the hockey team, and then we got uh, uh, Jane, she's p practicing basketball, so there's not a time of coherence in the family. So now we've got that culture problem. And we have to, as pastors and leaders, we have to deal with our people and how to overcome that. Because the fundamental social unit in any society is the family. If the family goes to pot, the society goes to pot. Night follows day. It's just cause effect. Ideas have consequences. And I'm talking to some of the parents. I was using the illustration from um, the... Uh, Remember the Chariots of Fire? Remember Eric Liddell in that scene in the movie where he is not going to run for his country on Sunday, period. And the Prince of England comes in and the people start castigating him for being unpatriotic because he won't run on Sunday for his country. And this is part of his faith. He is not going to run on Sunday, period. So that's the end of the discussion. And that causes social conflict and so on. And for a parent to step into the situation and limit digital devices, do a digital fast for some time, limit digital devices, limit television. How did Ben Carson's mother raise out of the ghetto as an illiterate woman with three part-time jobs and she... In those two boys she had in the middle of that ghetto, one became a rocket scientist and the other a brain surgeon. What are the two professions that we always refer to? You know who's that ought to be an American idol? Mrs. Carson. Because she sat there and told her boys, no, I am the parent, I make the rules. You don't make the rules. Right now, you're under my authority. And as a result of that, look what she did. All by herself, didn't have a big government program to do that. That was a mother who decided that she was going to mother those boys and it was going to be done correctly. And there are consequences for that. Those boys didn't automatically like their mom for doing that, if you read the biography. But it was tension. So when I talk about a spiritually declining hostile culture, I'm not just talking about the academics. The problem in our universities right now is the faculty are kids that grew up in the 60s. What we've got now in our educational system is a product of the 60s. We've got uh, students and, and all of our congregation, unless they've been homeschooled, think about this. Every person in your congregation, outside of those that have had the benefit of going to a Christian school or been home educated, gone from kindergarten to 12th grade, and how have they learned every single subject? As though God doesn't exist, or if he does, he's absolutely irrelevant. You take people who for 13 years, week after week after week, who have been involved in a secularized curriculum, sterilized from the word of God, and then we have a little 50-minute sermon on Sunday once a week and then wonder why sanctification is so slow. After you have learned every subject as though God is irrelevant, it's going to take you years of study, prayerful study of the Word of God until you can get the garbage out and reorganize your intellect because you can't think in a godly fashion if that's been your first 13, your most, your most formative years, 13 years, and that's the way you've learned everything. And then you come to the Word of God. I know. I didn't become a Christian until I was at MIT in college. And it's taken me years to rethink this thing. 
Thankfully, the man who led me to the Lord made me aware of how stupid the secularism was and that I had a job in my own personal Christian life to get rid of this stuff and rethink it. If God's word is God's word, then that's the starting place. The Bible doesn't say God is the conclusion to a line of reasoning. The Bible says God is the beginning of wisdom. He is the ultimate presupposition. So the culture demands a response from us or we're going to lose it. We have theological chaos. I don't have to cover that. Dr. House has done a job on that, Dr. Farnell. So we've, we've seen that very thoroughly. I want to address the other thing. Every, about every month we have someone say, well, are you accredited? No, we're not accredited. And as far as I'm concerned, I hope we never are accredited. When I went to Dallas Seminary, my generation, I went to Dallas Seminary with Dr. Meisinger. We were classmates together. We did not go to Dallas Seminary because it was accredited. We went to Dallas Seminary because we wanted to study under men like Dwight Pentecost, John Walverd, Dr. Unger, and the other men because they were credible. Never mind the accreditation. These men had credibility because of their ministries. So accreditation has become a bureaucracy. It takes millions of dollars to gain accreditation, and it takes control of what you do. It requires faculty to get doctorates from other universities, and we've already seen what happens to the other universities of young men going to Europe and bringing back. That was really helpful, wasn't it, to the spiritual toner of those, of those campuses. And the other problem is the costs of education are totally out of control absolutely out of control. If you take a graph and you look at the tuition versus time and it's climbing like this and you look at the cost of living index and it's going like this. Why is education costing more and more and the cost of living doesn't justify it? I'll tell you one reason. One of the reasons is because the government has made student loans so available that the administrators of universities are taking money knowing that the students, of course, can get student aid. So now we can use it to invest in our bricks and mortar. Well, I got news because the Internet is going to replace the bricks and mortar or a large part of it. And all that investment of millions of dollars in bricks and mortar is going to have a problem incoming future, particularly if they owe money, which they shouldn't be owing at all. Dr. Chafer had certain axioms, and those of us who are the, the old guard that, that went to the Dallas back in, a generation or two ago, we remember these. These are what we were taught in our classes. And the other thing that would characterize that kind of education is that most of the professors were active pastors or had been active pastors. You know what the difference is between learning from a pastor versus learning from a, a technical scholar? I remember one day Dr. Pentecost came into our class totally exhausted. He plopped his notes down on the desk in front of us and said, men, I am so tired today that I am unprepared for this lecture. And let me tell you now why I'm so tired. I spent all evening up until 3 o'clock this morning counseling a couple on the verge of divorce. And I want to tell you about that because that's the kind of thing in real life pastoring that you will encounter. Do you know, of all the, all the lectures I remembered from Dr. Pentecost, or had from Pentecost, that's the one I've never forgotten because he was just sharing as only a pastor who is a scholar, but only a pastor with that background understands and he can prepare you. You feel like you're talking to someone who's been on the front lines of actual pastoring. We know that the men that were leaders in the church down in the Old Testament in Israel, they didn't just walk into a teaching position. They were trained. And we have Samuel, we have Elisha, we have Paul, Jesus. All of those men mentored the next generation. And I think we're negligent if we are in leadership positions in a church and we're not thinking about the next generation. Because you know what? If we're not thinking about the next generation, let's ask this question. Who do we expect to teach our grandchildren? 
if we're not trying to train the next generation and passing the baton, who takes care of our kids and their kids? See, we have to have a continuity. We have to think through. That's why we have been so um, so active in trying to get a, a school for training. I'm going to go on here because I, I think we've made that point. We want good men to fill pulpits. We have had horror stories. I remember one church here in Texas that tried 20 different candidates, and these were all seminary-trained people. All they wanted in their qualification was somebody who could teach the Bible to their congregation two times a week. I couldn't find one out of 20 seminary students that wanted to do that. And finally, and it was an older church, the demographics was a lot of hair, all white hair. <laughs> and finally, they, they asked me, can you recommend somebody? And it was a young man, actually it was Jeremy Thomas. And he was real young, he'd just gotten out of Tyndall. And I said, well, I know Jeremy, he, he'll be very good because I know I was there when at Texas Tech he was getting his education. I was there when Jeremy wanted to go to medical school and asking for a, a recommendation from the head of the biology department where he was majoring and the guy told him in his office, I can't give you a recommendation in medical school because you're one of those creationists and you're emotionally unfit for the medical profession. So I know Jeremy. Jeremy's been through the battle. And so I recommended Jeremy. And since Jeremy's been there, he's gotten young people. The demographics of that congregation have totally changed. You want a bell-shaped curve. You don't want it heavy on the, on the gray hair side. And he's done a wonderful job. The Lord's used him in a very wonderful way there. Another problem we faced is back years ago, we would have to take our families, our wives, if we have any kids with us, and move physically to a campus that was remote. And this cost money. Sometimes we had to have part-time jobs to keep going. And sometimes our wives had to help economically. This was a burden. Today, because of the economy, because remember, real wages have not changed in about three decades. If you plot real wages, they're flat. And when we talk about households today where both the man and the women are having to work, not just because the woman wants to work, she has to work, to make the budget. That's again due to the economy. We have no real growth in our salaries. So we've got now obstacles for married students. We've got prohibitive tuition costs. And what we've tried to do is create a model, and which we want to now explain to you so it's clear what we're trying to do. And one of the side effects of this model is to reduce the costs of seminary education. Seminary costs, as far as we've been researched, 35 to 50, it may be more. With Schaefer, it should be 10 or less than 20. Now I want to deal with a new model. And here's the two layers of our model, and I'll go through just a few slides quickly, and then I want to ask one of the pastors here, who has worked with the new model, so you get the idea that it's not just cluff up here spouting theory and PowerPoint slides. Um, we wanted a distributed method of training so that no matter where a man or woman was who was taking a course, they did not have to move their family 2,000 miles to a bricks and mortar campus. We wanted them to use online training. Now, a lot of universities are going to this route. That's true, and that's one reason why the, the ones who are dependent on bricks-and-mortar campuses are going to have a few problems here in the competition. So online training is a, is, a, is a capability that we want. Now, it's not easy to, it's easy to say it. It's hard to pull it off because those of you who know language training and exegesis, it's hard to learn that if you're not in a classroom and interacting with people on conjugating and diagramming sentences and, and getting to see it because it's largely an art form as well as a science form. So 
we are experimenting, and I'm going to have a, 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 one of our board members, the executive secretary, uh, executive director of our seminary, explain to you a model that we're testing right now to be able to do the one area in the curriculum that we think is, is difficult to pull off on uh, with distributed training. We're going to preserve the distinctives of Chafer, so when the model has nothing to do with the distinctives. These distinctives are still there, the emphasis on hermeneutics, analysis of the original languages, and uh, the scripture, believe, is adequate for everything. Uh, if you remember uh, David Roseland's uh, presentation yesterday, remember he was talking about Scottish realism and the fact that the Princeton people that followed that were a little bit naive about the old earth argument historical geology, and they were also a little naive about Darwin and evolution. And they thought, because they believed in the power of observation, empirical observations, that, well, surely there's observations that justify the old earth Lyellian view of geology. We are sure that Darwin, after all, didn't we see the, the beaks on the Galapagos Island finches change? That, it wasn't that empirical data. Well, there actually was no empirical data and never has been. There's no empirical data that shows that you can get life from non-life. There's no empirical data that's ever been presented that you can go from one phylum to the other phylum. There's been no empirical data that suggests that we have explained the fossils and the rock situation apart from the flood observations. It hasn't happened. So what happened there, I think, and this was the start of my emphasis on a framework, after I saw college kids, some from uh, a church right here in Houston that came to a campus nearby where I was, they knew the Bible, but when they got in the classroom and they started taking different subjects, it seemed like they had a hard time reasoning from the scripture over to these subjects. In other words, theologically, the problem here is how do you use special revelation to interpret general revelation? And, and frankly, they were very weak in that. They knew their Bible. But here's the problem. If you take people who have learned every subject from kindergarten to 12th grade in a secularized frame of reference, and you try to teach them the Bible, you know what happens? Because I watch this with college students. They know the Bible stories, but the Bible stories are in a compartment, a religious compartment. And so it stays over there. So when I study algebra or I study biology or I deal with economics or I try to start a business, the Bible is over there in the religious department. So that's why I tried to start training in frame of reference so that if you are well-trained, you ought to be able, no matter what the subject, no matter what the challenge is, you should be able to go back to at least the general section of the Bible where you can get truths that apply to that. Example. One of the big things on campus now is your identity. And the identity goes back to what? Where do we get as Christians our identity? Our creator, right? So you go back to Genesis. You go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 tells us about our sin. That's our identity. And then in the gospel, our identity is in Christ. But if you're, if you're biblically trapped in a little religious ghetto and all your Bible doctrine and Bible stories over there in the ghetto, it's hard to link up where do I go in the sense of these big ideas to control this instead of naively buying into this. So just an example of what's happened. So all of the distinct theology, the fact that historical, grammatical, none of this changes. But what we want to do is we want to work in a new way with churches. And what, as I said, the model has two parts. One is online courses. Now, that a lot of universities do that. But what we want to do is plug the pastors and the leadership into the educational process. Now, that doesn't mean the pastor has to do the training. But here's what we're talking about. There was a church in Connecticut that several of us know very well. That church moved a young man years ago, thousands of miles, to a seminary. That church bankrolled the move. 
They supported that person, and he came out theologically confused. Do you know what the effect that has had on that church leadership? They don't want anything to do with any seminaries. They wrote it off. Seminaries are a disaster. We tried that, and it didn't work. It screwed up our young person. So we have to overcome that. Seminary training is needed, but but that's the effect of what happens when you have faculty that supposedly hold to a doctrinal position, but in individual classes sow these seeds that Dr. Fornell has been telling about. So I'm going to ask Clay Ward if he would come up and share what he's been able to do using the model in your in your congregation. Thank you, sir. Charlie wanted me to share some of the things that have happened uh, at our church in using this model. Now, I'll be the first to say that we don't do things perfectly. Uh, and if you do, I want to talk to you because uh, I don't think any of us do anything perfectly. But we have uh, done a few things, and I want to share that with you. When I became the pastor of Pleroma Bible Church, getting ready to be 16 years ago now, um, seems like yesterday, but I remember distinctly something happening to me on a Saturday. I almost broke my neck jumping off a falling ladder, which is an uninteresting story that involves nothing stupid at all, but uh, <laughs> what happened was, as I recovered from the fall, I began to realize, well, this was on a Saturday. What would have happened if... You know, I wasn't going to be able to teach tomorrow. And then I got to dawning on me that what would have happened if it had been worse than that? I wasn't going to be able to teach for a month, or maybe the Lord took me home. So I began to have a burden of what was going to happen to God's flock there if something happened to me. Because as a small church, I was the only teacher. And this bothered me for uh, many years until... My first Schaefer conference, which was the last one in California, and it's when I first met some of you and uh, met Ron Merriman there, and I talked with Ron about that, and he eased my mind a little bit and just explained to me the the nature of the beginning of the church in its infant stage and as it matures and just to relax, really. Uh, I'm kind of a uptight kind of guy, so he just kind of told me to relax a little bit about that and uh, pray about it, and that as things grow, then God will make things available. And so that, that happened at a Schaefer conference, and Ron and I have been friends ever since. Matter of fact, he spent some time in our church, a couple of years in our church, uh, living in Tullahoma. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But it eased my mind, but I realized... I needed to be active in trying to figure out a way to train others to uh, be able to take the reins or at least help take the reins uh, at, even now. And if something were to happen to me, what, you know, what would happen to the flock? And prayer, of course, played a big role in that. And God began to work through different people. Uh, many of you here, I don't want to name too many names, but in one year I've got Robbie Dean and another year I got... Charlie Clough teaching and mentoring me in this as many, well as many others. And it motivated me to start looking for a way to train men. And in the process of doing that, I have a few men in my church came to me saying, hey, we would like to get some Bible training. I'm like, really? I've been talking to the Lord about you about that, and uh, that's great. And so at another Schaefer conference, I talked to Dr. Meisinger about that and began to ask him about how we could implement this. And I won't go in through all the process of that, but shortly after that, we had Dr. Ray Mondragon come and teach these men hermeneutics. It wasn't just men who were wanting to necessarily train to teach, but we also had a couple of ladies. We had some people audit. You almost always have people audit, don't you, when you teach a class? But we had some key men who wanted to learn how to study the Bible. And then in the process of that course going on, uh, we would bring Dr. Mondragon in for an intensive weekend. They had work to do before and during and after, and I'd also sit in on the classes. I, I audited the class, too, because I had other things to do also. But they, they did the work, and I was there to listen. And also, while 
Ray was away, I was there to help facilitate any of the work that they needed to do. They could bounce ideas off or whatever they might need to do. And in the process of that, I was finishing up uh, a D-Men, mainly just working on my writing, which still needs a lot of work. But as I finished that up, Dr. Meisinger told me that I could now teach uh, at a certain level for some, some of the classes. So I taught a theology for one class for the guys and some of the ladies. And then we had Ray back again for another course, um, Revelation, a book of Revelation. Ray came back and taught that. And in the meantime of doing that, some of the men were taking extension courses and I asked them to write up a little something, so it's, it's not just me talking. I asked Tommy, who's one of them, to write up something about what is meant to him in his life and in teaching the Bible. And Tommy has written this. He says, The opportunity to take Schaefer seminary classes through their distant training program has helped to heighten my personal Bible study. The structured coursework has taught me effective Bible study methodology that has improved the efficiency of my personal Bible study. While the languages proved to be out of my reach at this time, uh, let me stop right there. He did take Greek, uh, the first Greek class, and we'd work out in the mornings, and he had all these engineering questions about the Greek language because he's an electrical engineer that works at the uh, Engineering Air Force Base there. And I meant, man, I don't know, just learn it. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't help with that. I mean, I don't know why it developed that way into that detail, why the ablative and the genitive have to or have the same endings. Just learn it, man, and learn which one's doing what. But as an engineer, he had trouble with that. So anyway, uh, the other courses I've taken allow me to grow my biblical understanding, which in turn encourages me to continue in my personal studies and ambassadorship. I look forward to opportunities to take additional distant courses through Schaefer Seminary. He writes uh, almost a weekly devotion called Morning Meditation. Some of you may have heard of it if you know Tommy. But Tommy and I, we actually go to another country, and we teach the Bible to train other pastors in uh, another country. And he does his own work within the curriculum that we teach, but he does his own study. I'm there to help him, but I, I throw him to the wolves and uh, make him struggle through the text like I have to do, like you guys have to do, and because that, that's part of the process. So he's one example in which Schaefer Seminary has had a great impact in helping Tommy uh, get into understanding the text for himself. And the men who have received some training, uh, that uh, they're continuing to look to want to do some more so that they can more rightly handle the word of truth. One is filling in for me tonight while I'm here, uh, Drew Smith, and I asked Drew to write something. Uh, he says, my first experience with Schaefer Seminary was an inductory systematic theology course offered through Dr. Ward at Playroma Bible Church. you got to watch that Dr. Ward guy, though. Uh, be careful about him. Uh, he never calls me Dr. Ward, so I don't want you to get the idea that we call each other those kind of names. We use worse ones. But <laughs> he says, the opportunity to receive both the training and the personal mentoring was invaluable. And I want you to key in on that phrase, personal mentoring. That's the idea of the model here. As we anchor the training back into the local church, we anchor it back under the under-shepherd of God's flock. That's, that's the idea. And so he, he, he emphasizes that. He says, it was invaluable to deepening my understanding of God and his word. I'm grateful for all of the hours of leadership that the board invests to continue to adapt ministry models. Keep this training affordable and grateful, of course, also for the faithful men who teach and invest in the lives of the students. So there, there's another example, and Drew also, he goes to another country. I don't go with him, but he goes and does the same thing that Tommy and I do to train pastors in uh, that country with the Word of God. Another example on another level, this was dealing with men who want to teach the Bible, who, uh, who I feel absolutely confident to put in the pulpit to handle the Word of Truth. And that's very much a load off of my shoulders, to be honest with you. And uh, I'm very grateful to God's grace for that. But we also have other options and ideas with this. We have a young lady in our church, who some of you know, Lindsay, has actually plowed through Charlie's framework, uh, both, both parts, and a wonderful uh, student. But she teaches at the high school. And she has a ministry with high school girls teaching the Bible. 
And some of those girls have graduated, and now they are in college. So she has two groups. She has a high school group that she teaches, and she has a college group that she teaches. She has other Bible studies that she teaches with young ladies. And her ministry has had an impact in our community and in our church. One, one aspect in the community there's a young lady that she's been teaching and mentoring for years. That was She's in another church, this young lady is. But the girl that Lindsay's been mentoring is on the youth council of this other church. And they were in need of a new youth director. And this gal was grilling him on the gospel, making sure he had a straight gospel. She did not want a youth director in there who was going to be teaching a wrong gospel. So just impacts of things like that. I wouldn't have thought about that, but just those types of impacts. But with our church, I mean, if everyone was doing what Lindsay was doing, we'd be bursting out the seams. We've had a number of people and families that have anchored in our church because she introduced them to the truth through these Bible studies. And she would be the first to tell you that Schaefer Theological Seminary has prepared her for this ministry that God has given to her. And just another example that goes beyond what we what Charlie's been talking about fully in the pulpit. But if we're going to reach the culture, think in minds of this, that our job as pastors and the purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And that's all the saints for whatever ministry God has given to each one of us. And here's an example of that. Now, while these were taking some courses... I was always present uh, to help as much as I could, sort of serving like a uh, faculty advisor, I guess you'd say. So unless you actually teach the course uh, at uh, Pastors, it, it doesn't really add a whole lot of workload to you. Uh, Mark right now, Mark Musser is working with a young man in his church teaching Greek once a week. Uh, you could talk to him about how, how, what kind of workload does that put on to you. But if you, know, if you do teach a course, it's going to add some more work to you. But let me give you another example of how it goes even beyond our pastor, uh, training of pastors and how it goes beyond uh, thinking of just filling the pulpit. But also there's a certain reciprocal relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. Just real quick, First Peter 2, verse 1. Peter is coming to a conclusion here after giving some commands. I like the way Peter, he just kind of boom, boom, booms commands and puts some scripture with it. And uh, I think it's kind of like his preaching style to me. But he says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, when Peter's talking about longing for the milk of the word, he's thinking of the purity of the word of God, like a newborn babe cries out for milk. That's one thing I've learned. I have six children, and they know exactly what they want when they want it, and they won't settle for Coca-Cola when they're a baby. They, they know exactly what they're after. See, we all are to long for the pure milk of the Word. But I would, I would argue in one sense that one reason why we have the problems in the pulpits in the, today is because the people in the pew do not demand the pure milk of the Word. There's a reciprocal relationship that goes there. And so as... As, as members of a congregation, you can keep your pastor accountable by getting some training as well. I want to hit that at another little angle. I want to use this man as an example. Steve Grantham, he's, he just retired. He was a nuclear physicist. He was on a nuclear submarine for years and trained others in nuclear physicists or whatever that involves that's one thing about the men in my congregation they're smarter than I am it's not too hard to go but uh, they keep me in check you see because they know much out there uh, especially the men have been trained but they know enough about the languages and things to know that if, if I'm throwing out I don't speak German but if I'm throwing out the bovine scatology they know it and they will beat the bovine scatology out of me or if they don't I'm going to get mad at them but this is what Steve has said. I, he's, he approached me a couple weeks ago before the conference wanting to know when we could get going with some Schaefer courses. And so I asked him to write why. What, you know, what, I'm, I'm glad, but why? So he says two reasons primarily. One, to be a better Berean for my own spiritual growth. 
For example, I want to learn the original languages to some level so I can better check out the meaning of passages. Second, and I thought this was really neat, the more I can advance my knowledge and understanding of the scripture and theology, the more prepared I will be to help communicate and teach what I know to others in whatever opportunities that arise. So Schaefer can help in this area as well. And it's just another example of where the accountability can take place. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, it only really takes one because uh, Ron Merriman was in our church. I mean, if you were going to do something in Greek, I mean, if you brought up a participle or a paraphrastic, he was going to let you know one way or the other if he liked it or didn't like it. And I loved him for it. It kept me on my toes. And I want these men to be able to do the same thing. And that keeps us accountable to our flock as we are responsible as we equip them for the work of service. So thanks to Schaefer in helping in uh, moving in this direction. If I'm hit by the bus or more likely in my life, if I trip on a baby doll on the floor, I'll be impaled by Hot Wheels cars. But uh, regardless, if the Lord decided to take me home or move me somewhere else, I know we have men there who are able to handle the word of truth. I was very thankful to uh, Dr. Farnell's statements that he's made and the challenge the other night about churches training their own men. I take that to heart. I've been convicted to be more vigilant in this responsibility that we have because as faithful men, as pastors, we are to be learners as well. And as we learn, we are able to teach others and we can learn with the others. We can learn with each other. And that's something that can be involved, too, as you sit in on a course that's being uh, taught or audit a course even, or even take a course yourself. And so the essence of this is we want Schaefer Theological Seminary to be a tool for you to help you train your own leaders in your local assembly, which, of course, God has put under your charge. And as members of the board, we... I've seen God answer some prayers recently, and we are very excited about seeing the Lord move things forward. So thank you very much. Thank you, Clay. Good job. So the new model basically is to try to keep the seminary honest because we're going to have pastors constantly watching the material that's going to the students. This uh, faculty can't hide in a classroom and say things 2,000 miles away from where the young person's pastor is. So we've tried to build in these safeguards, and uh, I want to now just uh, ask our um, executive director, uh, Mike Regal, to come and just describe in a few minutes the uh, how we're trying to test uh, the equipment that's necessary for online training and uh, for how... Uh, it's being done with Robbie involved in teaching the hardest part of the curriculum to do over the Internet, and that's advanced languages. So, Mike, if you come. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, now, I'm not going to talk just about that. Now that I've got myself up here, there's a couple of other things I'd like to point out. And uh, let me start by, uh, I don't see Robbie, but I know he's here somewhere watching. I apologize for breaking the rule of speaking here at a Chafer Pastors Conference without wearing a necktie. I have a good reason. I brought three neckties with me on this long trip. I've already worn all three of them, and... None of them go with the shirt that I'm wearing today. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. How did, how did I get into this? I am, uh, I am not a pastor, nor am I in training for, a past, for the pastorship. But uh, when I retired for the, uh, for the third time, my uh, pastor, uh, David Roseland, said, we've got to get some activity for you to do. And he suggested that I might be able to do something with Chafer Seminary. And we had a discussion about the new model that was uh, embryonic at that point in time being developed. He, he, David, had had lots of conversation with Charlie and uh, uh, were working this model. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. Nothing happened for a while. One day, Robbie calls me and says, Mike, we'd like for you to... Uh, 
help us. We need some help implementing the new model. And I said, okay, I will try to do that. Now, uh, I have a very limited skill set. Uh, one of the skills that I have is a high recognition differential for Geschichte. <laughs> that means I can spot it very readily and sometimes I can help maneuver around it. And I think that's what they really, that's what they really wanted me to do. There are lots of challenges that, we have, that we're facing. One of, what is our current situation? What is our current state? You gotta know that before you can go somewhere else. You have to know where you are. And so figure that out, where are we, and then how do we get from point A to point B? Early on, we worked on, all right, this, we've got this new model. What, what can we say about it? What can we use for a simple descriptor? And the board came up with, after, after a lot of uh, multi-voting, et cetera, Chafer, the local church seminary, pretty much says it all. Okay, now how do we get there? Um, we have to develop, Charlie mentioned earlier that it's easy to talk about the concept, but it's maybe hard to implement it. So we have to talk about how can we do what we want to do. We basically have to be able to deliver content from anywhere to anywhere. And that's it simply, and we're, we're working on that. We can, we can do that. We can deliver live content anywhere in the world from anywhere in the world. I'll give you an example. Um, we are currently conducting an advanced Greek class. So that's the highest level. That's the last of our required Greek courses for Chafer Seminary. The professor is located in Guatemala. The technical assistance is being provided by Robbie Dean in Houston, Texas. Robbie manipulates the screen that the students are seeing so that we can keep the right page of Logos up for their view. Where are the students? The students are in Albuquerque. So now we've got Guatemala, Houston, Albuquerque. We have monitors of this course at Preston, Connecticut. Myself, my pastor, we sit in, we watch the course. Oh, there are others. How about Kiev, Ukraine? Yes, we are literally global with this course. Now, don't take my word for it. We have the two men, Chafer students that are taking this course, are sitting here in attendance today, ask them, is this course working for you? Are you getting the material that you need? Are you learning it? Is it doing what you need? Ask them, don't take my word for it, but it works. So um, we continue to work on this model, develop, we got some technical problems, we're working on those. We need your prayers. We need financial support. Oh, there's a secret I wanted to tell you. Um, slide you saw earlier that showed that the average cost to get through Chafer run about $10,000 to $20,000. Here's a secret. Your men can get through a lot cheaper than that. You help them. How do you help them? Have your church donate to Chafer for financial support, if you donate $3,000 or more dollars per year, then the men in your church can attend Chafer classes tuition free. That's not a mistake. I'll say that again. If your church donates $3,000 or more dollars per year to Chafer, your men can attend Chafer courses tuition free. Now they still have expenses, there are fees, they'll be responsible for those. They'll have to buy their textbooks, but tuition free. So Clay's men at Play Roma, David Roseland's men at Preston City Bible Church, everybody's men can attend tuition free if the church is willing to pony up and able 
to help with the financial support. So that's it for the scholarships. We're working on a we're working on a slick new brochure, a trifold that will uh, provide some needed information for pastors, for potential students, and a quick call to action to contact us for the real details. Our new president, Dr. Andy Woods, uh, in his massive travel schedule, will be taking these brochures throughout the country wherever he speaks and taking the name of Chafer out there so he can get the word out and get some students. We need students. I'm taking more time than you wanted me to, but that's your mistake for letting me up here. <laughs> that's, uh, that's all I... Oh, one... I'd li yeah, I would like to do one more. Following on, on Clay's example, my own church, uh, our pastor has trained his replacement to the point where a couple of Hebrew classes and uh, we'll be ready to ordain Ryan Baker. And then there will be, uh, he's already, we already know he's identified he's got the gift. He is a pastor. He just hadn't been recognized as one yet by the rest of the world. So um, uh, Ryan will be ordained and, and that training will, uh, will be, uh, well, it'll still be ongoing. Um, I have been able, through David Roseland, as, a, as an adjunct professor of Chafer Seminary, to take first-year Greek, first-year Hebrew, hermeneutics and Bible study methods, framework one, and framework two. Now, David didn't teach those. Charlie did. Charlie came to the church and gave a module, and, uh, and we covered those over a two-year period of time one module one year, one module the second year, was able to get all those courses done. Every one of the churches represented here can do the same thing and train your men and generate your own relief. Thank you, Mike. Um, Mike, uh, one point in his multifaceted career, was a submarine commander, and he's, his statement the other day in the middle of a meeting was, you can't take the ship to sea until everything is ready aboard. And that's what, uh, what, he's, what he's helping us, and he's been a tremendous help to us. Um, one other person that I want to introduce you to is Dave Roslin. If Dave could come in here and just uh, briefly share how he teaches because one of the things that we have emphasized is the whole seminary is not something in itself. We want it to be a tool of you pastors and leaders. If we're not that, it's a waste of time. So David has, he, by the way, has innovated. He's the guy that started a lot of these ideas. So blame it on David. <laughs> Actually, uh, Dr. Meisinger, said I think in a 2008 pastors conference if you guys have THMs we'll let you give credit for work you do in your churches for coursework for uh, masters of uh, uh, MABS level like you always go a level down so so teach the first two years of THM courses in your church so we started rolling out courses okay I can turn Greek one around I can turn the, the second semester Greek around we can do Bible study methods and hermeneutics and I was fresh out of Dallas I had all my notes you know and um so um, I just want to say that by doing that, we were, I was already doing uh, like a, a baby Greek course. And when, when George said that, we stopped and started over as an actual course. We put out a syllabus and everything, and, um, and everyone did really well. I added it as an, one of the evenings of the week. We didn't have children yet. It made a lot more sense to add uh, me being away from home another night during the week. Uh, the third kid came, and then all of a sudden the coursework um, didn't really work so well for my family all of a sudden. But, uh, you know, it, it, but, but we're just in a season. I'm also working on a doctorate. But we, we've done a lot of Chafer coursework in our church. And here's something I didn't expect to happen. We mentioned Ryan Baker. Mike Regal's been in every one of those. He did Greek with me twice now because we had the baby course and then back to, back to the real course. We had Charlie up. Um, um, this has been phenomenal because there have been five or six men who have come to these, and now they are 
able to handle the scriptures um, for themselves in an introductory. Once you get through introduction, it's all intermediate and further build on, but you've got to get that introductory work to build on it. And, uh, and so we do fellowship dinners. These men lead the, the, the groups. I don't, I don't just send somebody to know what he's doing. They've worked and we work together. We get together once a month to, to prep up for the fellowship dinners. And so there's, there's kind of, we call in the army a train the trainer. So I work, I work with these men, uh, before, um, they, they go and, and have the little Bible study. And in this conversation, people that haven't had the Greek and the Hebrew and the Bible study methods, they sit in on this and they say, what are you guys talking about sometimes? And we say, well, uh, and, and one of the other guys will say, well, the genitive's got 11 functions and this is a genitive issue. And, you know, it's, it's a possessive genitive, you know, and I, this is this is a phenomenal thing. One other thing that um, that to me is so valuable about Chafer Seminary is that this isn't David Roseland Seminary in Preston City Bible Church. It's a very important theme. Maddox, Siobhan, Clough, Dean, Elliot Johnson, J. Dwight Pentecost, Stephen Bramer, Thomas Constable, a bunch of guys I disagree with in the Theological Studies Department, but I love them. These, all these men worked on me. There is a wealth in this room. I want Clay Ward to teach my guys. I want Andy Woods to teach my guys. I want Robbie Dean to teach my guys again. I want, I want to have that multi, multifaceted cross-pollination value of multiple perspectives in the same schoolhouse. That's what a school is. A school is never one view just putting stuff out like the Pope ex cathedra. It gets, uh, what, what does Charlie call it, uh, the, the peer review in the scientific community, the incestuous peer review, you end up with a school of thought that's just one guy's ideas. And that's not what we're saying when we call it Chafer Seminary. Chafer represents uh, mainline American dispensationalism at its height in America. And, and so in this group here, we are of one mind. We are so in such great agreement, but we all come with different wealth, different perspectives. And that is one of the great values that I'm so excited about with this distributed model. The fact that Ray came to Clay's church and they studied under Ray and Clay was right there with them. That's, there's wealth to that. And he could say he was learning, you know, because I haven't heard everything Ray said. I don't know all the insights he's had and he's done a lot of work. So I just, it's so wonderful to come to these conferences. It's kind of like a build on. It's a conference plus. If we could get these, these courses together, we have, you know, more modules. So if anybody wants to see lovely New England and you've got, you've, you developed a course for Chafer. I mean, think about it. We're really interested in, in doing that for our people. And, uh, and that's, that's, uh, it, we're just so wealthy because, because George said y'all teach classes. So thanks. Thank you, Dave. One of the things that uh, David has been doing, uh, as I said, he is doing some of the teaching. And we encourage you as pastors, you take these courses and you you're become qualified. Just find out from the seminary and maybe you can qualify to be the teacher of the course in your in your local church. So this just we're going to end now, but I want to end with an exhortation uh, for you to uphold this school in prayer. Um, we have a lot to do. Uh, Dr. Woods, in spite of the installation ceremony, he's still pastor of Sugarland Bible Church. So he is limited in the time that he can devote to president office. But nevertheless, he is also pastor of the church, and that church can become a learning center. So courses can be taught there. So see what happens here is that churches can become independent learning centers. And I think with the way our society is going, the more distributed areas we've got, the harder it is for the enemy to close us down. Just remember, this structure that we have here can go underground very easily. So let's close in a word of prayer. Appreciate the attention and please interview us if you have any uh, questions to, to ask or ask some of the Clay or, or David on how things are going in their church. But pastors, that if you are here today and you are a pastor, we 
ask you to prayerfully consider people in your congregation that have spiritual gifts of teaching, pastoring. What are you doing to train? We're here to be your tool. So please utilize us. Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for the fact that you are moving history forward one day at a time to its invincible conclusion to glorify your son. We thank you that therefore there's no power on earth, no principality or power in heaven that can stand against your son because you have seated him at your right hand far, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, not only named in this age, but in the age to come. And we ask that you would guide us, that you would correct us, and that you would develop us to grow your body, not for our sake, but for your son's sake. For we ask this in his name. Amen.